In a globalized world, what does understanding yourself mean without a comparative perspective? That's how the extraordinary Hernando Rojas concluded our conversation in this episode of El Café Latinx. And it got me thinking, how would the field of communication and media studies look like if contextualization was not the exception that one needs to do when undertaking studies in the global south, but the norm that everybody, including those studying in and about the global north, would have to do for each one of the arguments that they make? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Hernando Rojas of University of Wisconsin-Madison in El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Hello everybody, welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I have an amazing guest today, Hernando Rojas from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he is Centennial Professor. He also holds the Helen Fersbrook Franklin Chair and is Director of the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Hernando got uh, his law degree at Universidad Externado in Bogotá, Colombia then went on to get a master's at the University of Minnesota. And in 2005, he got his PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In addition to his appointment in Madison, he's also the director of the Center for Political Communication Research at his alma mater, Universidad Externado in Colombia. Hernando has received many, many distinctions for his research. In most recently, in 2000, he was named a fellow of the International Communication Association. He is the author and or editor of six volumes. The current one he's working on for Cambridge University Press is Social Media and Political Paralyzation and has published more than 50 journal articles in prestigious outlets. He's an expert on issues of political communication, social movements, and communication technology. And it's a pleasure to have Hernando with us today. Uh, hi, Pablo. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, my friend. So, so to get us started, um, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the beginning of your journey that led you to become a professor? So it all began with a big bang. No. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, let's see, I, when I was a, a university student, I never thought that I would become a professor. Uh, as you mentioned in, in your kind introduction, I started out uh, thinking I was going to be a lawyer. I went to law school, 
I actually practiced law for uh, a couple of years and I realized very quickly that that wasn't something I really enjoyed doing. And I had always been fascinated with communications and with journalism. And so I decided to change my career and um, study journalism. And so I, I applied, uh, as you mentioned, to this uh, University of Minnesota. And I was thinking, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do a master's and I'm going to become a professional journalist. I got to Minnesota. Uh, this is in the early 90s. Um, and of course, because I had a law background, they gave me as my advisor, the law professor. <laughs> and, and I was actually, I wanted to stay away from law. I didn't want to go back to media law. Uh, but uh, anyway, it, it, was a, it was a great program. I had a lot of fun there. Uh, towards the middle of the program, I was more and more intrigued by research. And so I started taking some research classes and thinking, should I transfer to the research MA and potentially if I decide to, at a certain point in my life, do a PhD, I will have my research MA as opposed to the professional MA. And so I did that. And so I transferred, but, but again, I transferred as a, I mean, it was like, a, maybe this could happen in the future, but not really thinking that that was gonna be the case. And so I ended up writing an MA thesis that actually became my first publication on something that at the time was very new, the third person effect. And so <laughs> it was, a, it's something that I've come um, now and then back to, it, but it has been very influential in the way I think because it made prevalent to me the importance of perceptions. And so even though I don't study third person perceptions that much anymore, it has become a staple of my way of thinking about the world and the importance of people's perceptions about the world. I finished my MA. I went back to Colombia. There I worked as a professional journalist for a few years. Um, and after that, I started doing some consulting with uh, government agencies, uh, in particular, uh, some civic culture programs with the Bogota administration. Uh, and that made me realize that I knew a little bit on how to do research, but I, 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 I had to learn more. And so that's when I decided on applying to a PhD, um, applied he, uh, to the University of Wisconsin, uh, came here, did my PhD, and have been trying to leave since, and I haven't been able to. It's such a wonderful place. <laughs> that's excellent. But you still also remain very connected to Colombia. You have the center that you founded um, and you continue to run. So yes, so I've, I've created, so I, I started by creating a partnership uh, with UW and a university in Colombia and we created uh, that center as part of that partnership. And so we do a lot of joint research uh, with that center that is financed by UW, by the uh, Universidad Externado there. And there's been a permanent collaboration then with faculty members there um, and, and grad students here. And so we've had sort of this very productive relation. Uh, for me, it gives me the excuse to visit Colombia very often and remain in, a, 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 in touch with colleagues there. And, a, and it has also been great for them in terms of an exchange of ideas. So yes, I do re 
remain very in touch. So through these ongoing collaborations and your own personal experience, how, how would you characterize the similarities and differences in, in academic cultures in uh, a Midwestern institution such as University of Wisconsin, Madison, and a Latin American institution such as Universidad Externado. If, if you could tell uh, for, for our audience a little bit, who might be more familiar with Wisconsin Madison than with Externado, describe a little bit uh, the institution in, in Bogota. And then I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on, on that. Sure. So uh, Universidad Externado is an institution that has uh, a little over 100 years of existence. It's, it's, um, it's a private institution. It's a foundation. If, um, so it's kind of based on the foundation model. Um, the biggest difference has to do with this was a university that for many years and particularly in communications was a professional school. And so it was really about training the next generation of journalists and the next generation of strategic communicators. And research was not really part of the curriculum at all. And so it's been a long process of introducing a research culture within a, this unit. And again, I've, I've, been, I've been collaborating with them since uh, 2005 at least. Um, and, and so, the university there, and in particularly this communications unit there, has sort of shifted from being a professional school to being both a professional school, but with a research orientation as well. And so now there's plenty, multiple faculty members there who have PhDs, who conduct uh, interesting research on different uh, things. And so I've been a witness and I've tried to help in that process of a, that change from just a trade training to a reflection and, 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 and research. And so that still continues to be the biggest difference in terms of the resources available uh, for research in an institution like this one or like the one you're in, in which of course there's uh, many, many more resources and there's also a stronger culture of doing research um, than there. But it's been very exciting to see that start to develop there. Um, so I'm, 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 let's say I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I've had this opportunity to collaborate with them. Going back to your question then, at least in the field of communications uh, in Colombia, it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively recent field of study. Um, initially, mostly uh, evolving around cultural British uh, studies and, and, and with a very low orientation towards empirical verification, right? So a lot of theorizing. <laughs> <laughs> grandiose theories about many things and, 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 and not a lot of actual qualitative or quantitative um, verification of that. This is changing and it's changing uh, quite rapidly. Um, but I would say that that still continues to be then. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a culture of research difference. There's a resource difference. Um, and there's a clearly more a stronger inclination towards empirical research in US institutions than in many Latin American institutions. This is changing fast in Latin America, though. How so? 
I think increasingly, um, I think increasingly uh, all universities in the area are adopting programs of research and research has become a, a more important part of what they do. And sometimes it might just be to, there's a government requirement that they need to fulfill. So it might start out as a very, right? I, we need to show that we do some research, but that's how it might start out. But over time, it becomes actually people who start doing that research become enthusiastic about it. And, and, and so it continues to develop. And so, when I went to the university in the late 80s, in, in, in Colombia at least, and again, there's different disciplines, but um, across the board, you saw very little original research. Now that's not the case. Now it's still of varying qualities. And so you'll find very good research. You'll find other research that is not as strong, uh, but it's a process. Okay. and. So you have described some of the benefits of the partnership um, for the partner institution in Colombia. Um, what would you say has been the reception of this? Because you've been building an institution that are contributing to build an institution and changing a field in Colombia, but also in partnership with the University of, of Wisconsin. Right. Um, so what has, it, what has the reception been at your home institution in, in, in Madison over time? So I think in, in general, there's been a lot of openness in terms of if this is something that you want to pursue, there's been support for me to pursue this, support in terms of uh, internal research grants that I've been able to apply to doing research there. So I think that there's been a, 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 a lot of openness and, and, and support. Um, Colombia, because of violence, has some limitations in terms of the scope of an agreement like this might have. So I've never been, I've never pursued very heavily trying to create undergraduate exchange of students, for example, because I understand that it's going to be very hard to convince parents in the Midwest to send their kids on an exchange to Colombia. Again, we go back to perceptions. Um, nowadays, uh, many cities in Colombia are statistically safer than many cities in the US, but mm -hmm. that's not the perception most people would have. Uh, but I think at the research level, and, and so, so th that usually these type of exchanges come with these uh, student exchanges as well. It, for us, it has been more of a research exchange. Many of our many of our many of my grad students here have visited Colombia, have visited the center there, have done a lot of work, um, and published. Uh, so they've they've gotten understanding of of politics in Colombia, and they've started to publish um, about Colombia and 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 the political system there. And so I think it's it's been good for everyone involved, uh, particularly for me. <laughs> Absolutely, because in, in part it allows you, as you said, to remain connected to professional life in your home country, have an opportunity to visit friends, family, etc. Uh, but also have that the duality of being a Latino person in the States, being a professor in the States, and being a, a Latin American person in Colombia, uh, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this has allowed for things like, so many of my colleagues here has, have visited, have given talks, have, been, have given workshops uh, in Colombia. We've also brought some faculty there uh, to, to give talks here. And, and again, that starts creating sort of networks of collaboration that are very important. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you know, you've been very active at the International Communication Association, where you also have an important role in the structure. Um, so what would you say, how would you characterize the, the place of uh, Latin American research in and on Latin America within the global communication field, starting with the International Communication Association and then other societies and other dialogues? So again, if and not being a historian, and, and so being so it, 20 or 30 years ago, there were two or three Latin Americans who were well-known and well-regarded uh, worldwide, if you will, in the, in the field of communication, people like Garcia Canclini. Uh, and, 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 and so you could name, probably with one hand, you could say these are the sort of um, five communication or three communication scholars uh, from Latin America. I think that uh, more recently, there has been an explosion of scholarship uh, people doing work in Latin America, people doing work in US institutions and institutions in different parts of the world. And so now every time you, I was gonna say every time you go to IC, the ICA conference or when we used to go to the ICA conference, you would see there's a contingent of uh, Chilean scholars and there's a contingent of Argentinian scholars and Colombian scholars and Mexican scholars. And so uh, it's still, um, it still is not as strong as it can be, but the shift in the last few years has been a quite strong. Um, and so I think increasingly there's, there's increasing visibility of uh, people who study the region or people from the region in, in organizations, in institutions, and in terms of research output and the research that's being cited. Okay. Um is that also changing or affecting um, the way knowledge is produced and circulated? I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of a paper that you wrote with Sebastián Valenzuela for political communication, uh, where you argued for the need for greater contextualization in political communication research. Similar arguments could be made of other you know, objects of inquiry or subfields. Um, so, so if you could explain a little bit about, you know, uh, for our audience, what the argument was about and, and, and elaborate on how much change do you see over time? Um, what do you think would be the, the, the main uh, areas to perhaps push for more change in the future? Because it still is the case, you know, about 13%, I believe 13% of the world population live in the so-called global North uh, nations. Um, but it's not 13% of the research produced and certainly not 13% of the citations. Um, so, uh, however, those, you know, nations are, are held to be, um, you know, the exemplars many times. So what are your views on this matter? Okay, so let me start with the let, let me start with the, the, the argument and, and, and then I'll move to, to, towards some more editorial comment. And so so the, the, the basic argument that we were trying to make in that piece was um, that when you try to publish a, a, an article of a country or a society that was not in, let's say the, the north, right? So 
in the European context or USA, U, USA, Canada, Canadian context, it, you would always get a reviewer that would ask you to explain whether your findings were true findings or whether they were based on the context that you were looking at, right? And and this is a this this is this was very annoying. And as a young scholar, you you become a, <laughs> enraged by that in the sense that if you are doing a very similar paper with US data, nobody would have asked you to explain whether your findings were contextual or, or, or real findings. And so over time, I actually had this long paragraphs that I could cut and paste to explain the context and to added to the reviewer. And I developed all kinds of strategies. So for example, a reviewers would want me to, I was publishing an article about Colombia and they would want me to say, okay, a deliberation in Colombia. And to me, it was like, well, we don't, if I'm publishing an article about the US, I don't say deliberation in the US, right? It's about deliberation. And so it was a double standard there. And, and over time, I learned to navigate that standard in terms of, say, again, you, do you really want to fight the reviewer and say, no, we shouldn't put Columbia in the title. And then they might decide that they don't want your article published anyway. It wasn't that good to begin with. And so I, I was very strategic about saying, OK, sure, that's fine. We, we could put that in the title. And uh, then right before publication, contacting the editor, once it had been accepted, and saying to the editor, you know, I really think this is a bad idea to change the title. And this is why I think it's a bad idea. And then most editors would say, yeah, you're right. And they would take it back off. And so then it would be a paper about deliberation, not about deliberation in Colombia. With the logic, or my logic being, that, a, that someone that's not interested in a particular context might then not be exposed to that piece because it doesn't it ring a bell. It becomes more about the country and less about the theoretical argument that's being made. Um, and so in this latest piece that we, we kind of went to talk a little bit about some of those anecdotes, but more importantly, it, we, our conclusion now is that that, that, that that reviewer number two is actually right. You should ask for how contact uh, are affecting those relationships. It's just that you need to ask it all the time, right? You can't just ask it for some countries of some societies. No, we have to ask it permanently. Well, how is con how is context playing a role here? And so the, the call that we were making to contextualize public um, political communication research was basically to say, okay, uh, yes, let's take this context argument seriously and let's apply it across the board to everyone. And then of course we had some interesting anecdotes in the piece. So I remember referencing Almond and Verva in, in, in their sort of seminal comparative piece, looking at political culture in Mexico and the United States and, and in, the, in the late fifties and arguing, well, you know, the US is a full democracy, Mexico is not, but over time, Mexico is going to be more like the United States. And, and we actually were showing how it seems that they were right, but they were wrong about the direction. So the US looks now more like Mexico and not the other way around. Um, but again, this just raises the importance of highlighting uh, under what context you're finding certain relationships and, and, not, give, and not assume that, that some relationships can be context-less. So that's kind of the general argument there. Now, 
uh, going back to your production of knowledge, sure, there's still great disparities in terms of production of knowledge that have to do with resources, right? Um, my colleagues in Colombia have to teach uh, a number of hours that I don't have to teach. Uh, they don't have the same uh, access to research grants that I have, right? And those were some of the things that attracted me of staying here and, and sort of creating this joint venture rather than, than going back. And so, of course, all, these, all those inequalities affect um, the levels of production and, and of output. So yes, yeah, so there's still large inequalities in how much is produced and how much it's, it's, is, is, is actually um, published. It, but again, if, if you compare it to 20 or 30 years ago, the numbers have changed dramatically in favor of more publications coming from what we could call the global south. Are we still very far away as you were pointing out in, the, in your question? Yes, we're still a very far away, but I think of it as a process, right? I think of it as a process of, a, as these researchers train their own students there. So again, we're gonna have, a, 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 I, I think a flourishing research endeavor. And I would add to that, that because of that traditional theoretical focus of the social sciences in Latin America, we're actually potentially gonna be very well equipped to synthesize empirical findings and mesh them with theory, which sometimes is one of the deficiency of communications studies in the US in which sometimes they're somewhat limited in, in, in the theorization that goes behind them. Okay, so, so if you could sort of uh, socially engineer a way to fast track this process of inequality reduction, what would you do? Uh, <laughs> when you say socially engineer, how powerful am I? <laughs> as powerful, this is a podcast, my friend. So as powerful as you want to be. <laughs> so I think I mean I I think clearly. So 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 different actors can play very different roles, right? And and I think most actors are already aware of those inequalities, aware of those limitations. Could they do more? Maybe they could do more. But, but I think that you, you see the trend within academic organizations, for example, increasingly wanted, wanting to have members from these areas, uh, organizing the conferences uh, in the South to include more people from those regions, right? So you see a push coming from professional organizations. Um, I, I, I think the exchange the, the, by, so, so bi-directional exchanges of students and professors is critical. And then the third element I think that has to happen is a more government-sponsored research in the Global South. And of course, yes, there are budget limitations, there are comparative budget limitations, but I think that we need to spend much more of a Latin American countries' budgets in, in, in terms of research and research development that is actually mm, appropriate for the region that it's being, um, that it's taking place on. And so I, I, I think that those three elements sort of 
um, flow of people, uh, local resources coming from uh, governments and, um, and then sort of uh, uh, international alliances focusing more on the region would all go in that direction. Okay. Um, now, going back to sort of your straddling, in, but not straddling perhaps because you're based in Madison, but your continuing involvement with Colombia, right? And with the region, because you were a professor in Chile, visiting professor in Chile for a few years. Um, how much has that affected both the kinds of projects that you do and how you do them in the sense intellectually, right? The, how you analyze your data, how you interpret the findings, how you uh, problematize sort of the limitations that you might have. Does that, has that, do you think, factored into your, in, in, because we are talking more high level, your views of the field, policy, et cetera, but as a, as a scholar, how much uh, of your biography has informed what you've done, you think? Well, yes, as some people mentioned, maybe all research is autobiographical in the sense that there are certain topics that are interesting to us and they're interesting to us precisely because they affect us in some fashion. And so I, to me, some of the societal difficulties in Colombia to, for example, peaceful resolution peaceful resolution of conflict. So that has, it, that has been for me, well, a great interest then in deliberation and how do you exchange opinions across lines of difference in ways that don't result in violence, right? And so, so I think clearly these contexts have a, made an impact in terms of a, what I study and also in, have highlighted to me the importance of particular contexts in which things happen. And so I think those are probably the, um, the two biggest things that for me, it has been about looking at certain topics and not others, and also being very aware of things happening within a given context. Okay. Um, and that probably also has informed the comparative aspect of your research, right? Because you, you have been involved, not just in, you know, US, Colombia and comparisons, but in very large scale projects with Shanto, with James Curran, with a few other colleagues uh, that have tried to tease out mechanisms, uh, you know, by comparing, you know, public opinion issues, et cetera, across a wide number of contexts. Absolutely, and and again, it, it initially I, I sort of started out by the sort of U.S. Colombia comparisons. Uh, very quickly, I became interested in in Colombia, other Latin American, so Colombia Mexico comparisons or Colombia Chile comparisons. Uh, but then, of course, you start realizing, and 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 uh, once you start being able to look at this in even broader strokes, uh, you start being fascinated by what's contextual and what might be universal, right? And so the more you open up to that, I think the richer your worldview and your research becomes with all the difficulty it implies, right? From the very methodological difficulties of translating a survey, 
And I actually had, when I, when, when I teach a, a public opinions class, I, I actually keep this email exchange between, if I remember correctly, Andrew Hayes, um, I'm lapsing on another name, uh, myself, and a group of people who were trying to uh, translate the, the um, uh, willingness to self-censor scale. And so again, it's five items. It's five, six items. It's, uh, but, but it was. I mean, it was. It was. There was one that was particularly interesting, trying to translate community, the concept. Of, so the word community, but of course the concept behind community, to Mandarin and to German, and the discussions. And so we have pages and pages of discussion about what is the appropriate word because if you say community that doesn't mean in China what it means in the US and so then how do you compare these so so from those methodological issues that immediately illustrate to you that there are different ways of looking at the world there are different ways of understanding the world and the more you uh, the, the more you embrace them I think um, the more fun you have in doing your research I, I have been very lucky to have uh, students from Asia that have opened that part of the world to me. And so I'm working with a group of students from Korea, uh, China, um, and Japan. And to me, it's fascinating because they have the local expertise. And so they can teach me how to understand patterns that to me might be incomprehensible uh, if it were not for them. And so um, so to me, it has been a, a process of, of increasing importance of the comparative aspect, uh, almost as a way of demonstrating whether your relationships, or, or not whether your relationships are real or not, that's probably not the, a good way of putting it, but rather under what conditions they actually materialize. Excellent, excellent. And so taking into account, you know, your biography, your research, what the comparative contextual sensibility has, um, Taught you your involvement with ICA, um, now your new directorship uh, at one of the most prestigious uh, programs in the country, in the world, actually. Um, so summing all of that up together, if you if you have magical powers, right, the social engineer to the extreme, if you wish, and and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change. Um, what would you wish for? Okay, uh, so I, I, it's very simple and it's not that magical. <laughs> uh, I think our, our weaknesses and our strengths are intimately linked. And, and I say this because one of the great uh, strengths of the field of communication and we can still argue whether it's a field or not. But one of the great strengths of communication has to do with um, its openness to methods, its openness to different theoretical strands, right? And so we employ theories coming out from psychology, from sociology, from anthropology, from cultural studies. Uh, we employ all the gamut of methods from a big data, surveys, experiments, a qualitative research. And so, so there's been a, a big openness to embrace theories, ideas, and methods coming from all over the humanities and the social sciences. And I think that's 
a, a great strength to have that openness, but it, it immediately becomes a weakness. And the weakness is, it's also very fractured, right? And so a, we might be talking about something in health, in political communication and in health communication, they're talking about something similar, but they're using different language or they're using models that maybe, or vice versa, right? And, and, and so we, and so I think that if anything, we need to maintain sort of that openness because I think that's a great strength of communication. But at the same time, we need to strive for a greater integration of theory across subdisciplines within communication that allow us to push the boundaries of science further rather than having all kinds of, of, of research that becomes somewhat contradictory and some kind, some, sometimes difficult to, to make coherent sense of. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with sort of this fractures and, 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 and in theory and, and methods. And so as, as I started by saying, your weaknesses are your strengths and your strengths are your weaknesses. And so to me, that would probably be um, the most important thing that we need to do in the field of communication is a, a advanced theory in a less fractured way. Okay, and has that become more pronounced? Has this sort of uh, weakening of the strength, so to speak, has it become more pronounced over time, you think? Has it always been like this? Um, I, I think at least discursively. So I remember uh, talking to uh, Silvio Weisberg when he became editor of, of Journal of Communication that that was one of his big things, right? Um, I haven't talked with him about it since he stopped, stepped down from the editorship. Uh, but my sense is that there's a lot of institutional incentives that go against that, right? And so it's easier for me to publish on the topics that I already know and to be narrow-minded and to get a lot of uh, mileage out of a, 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 a thin set of ideas, right? That is rewarded because I have the publications for tenure, because I have the citations. And so, so, it, so the incentives uh, continue to be on the side of um, fracturing, but there's a discourse of integration, right? So there's a big discourse of we need to have interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, uh, and, and universities come up with schemes of, so let's hire people who are 50% in one department, 50% in another department as a way to try to bridge those. So there is that discourse, uh, but I think most of the incentives still remain on the side of, it, it's actually potentially smarter, not more intelligent, potentially smarter to focus and be disciplined. And the same could be said perhaps for the contextual issue, right? There is a lot of discourse about greater contextualization, et cetera, et cetera, but the incentives sometimes go against that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and particularly as in, in, in political communication, at least as, 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 as much of the funding in the US has been reduced for those types of purposes. So it used to be, and this is also a big change going back to one of your previous questions, right? It used to be that in these 
international partnerships, usually there was a US scholar that had a big grant and would actually find PIs in different parts of the world and would share part of the grant with them. The model now is completely different, right? Now it's actually it's PI, local PIs who are finding grants in their own countries and it kind of comes together as a collaboration. Um, and so, so that has also been somewhat of a change that is related to the reduction of funding for that type of research in the US. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the incentives, the, 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 the institutional incentives are still more on the side of uh, focusing on if you're a US institution or a European institution in your own country. And potentially from a political perspective, one could say, and why not? We want to understand and we want to use our resources to understand ourselves. But of course, in a globalized world, what does understanding yourself mean without the comparative perspective? Excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Ananda Rojas, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you, all of you in the audience, for listening to us. And I invite you to tune in uh, to the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. Thank you, Paulo, and look forward to our next café, hopefully face to face. Me too, my friend. Bye now. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mona Matassi.